0: what's going on guys this is passive wealth strategies for busy professionals thank you for tuning in today we have a great one for you with anthony walker today we're talking about investing in southern california not just investing in southern california but cash flowing investing in southern california anthony has been investing in southern california for a while he's a broker he tells us all about his story and his strategy that he uses to invest and cash flow in a a high cost primary market. He's doing very well with it. He gives us a few case studies that he's used, uh, that that he's experienced, that have been success stories for him that can be inspiration uh, for us if we want to invest in Southern California. A lot of folks, we, we don't know about cash flowing investing in Southern California because it seems like it's not easy to do, but Anthony's doing it and today he tells us how we can get started cash flowing investing in southern california real estate it's pretty exciting there are not a lot of people out there teaching this topic so i'm very excited to uh, learn about this today alongside you thanks for tuning in for those of you who don't know i'm your host taylor Lote. i'm a real estate syndicator real estate investor i buy real estate with passive investors and split the return Really excited to bring this one to you today. Thanks for tuning in. Here we go with Anthony Walker from Buckingham Investments. Anthony, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Looking forward to talking with you about investing in Southern California, something that I'm not educated on. I'm looking forward to getting educated about it today. Before we get into the topic, can you tell us about what you do and your investments so we know who we're dealing with right now?
1: Sure. So I am a Los Angeles area multifamily broker and I've been doing that for about 10 years now. I got into that because I was initially an investor in small multifamily properties and I worked as a client first with my company, Buckingham Investments, before deciding to become an agent and then a broker. And then eventually I, I took the company over in 2017 and now I'm the CEO and we're, we're growing the business so um, during that time frame, starting uh, kind of right in the last crash, uh, I guess I bought my first investment property in 2006, but then really settled on doing multifamily in 2009 and 10 and started buying properties here in the LA area around then. Um, I have refinanced and exchanged and built up a portfolio of about 100 units now, uh, mostly in the Long Beach area. Uh, i really like that market for a variety of reasons that we can talk about if you like and so i use my experience uh, doing that as an individual investor to help clients who are interested in learning about investing in our market uh, and figure out how this works help them calculate their returns forecast what it might look like, how much capital to invest, what what property to buy, and then broker the deals and then of course run the company. And we have about 30 agents working for us doing the same thing um, all around the LA area.
0: Nice. Great. Appreciate the summary. And you know, I want to just dive into it and and go through some of the what you know, you're going to tell us our misconceptions about <laughs> investing in Southern California. So, you know, We can just walk through them, but you know, it seems to me it's the price points are high. high. It seems like it's like it's a rich man's game. Like, how do you get started investing? You know, what do you need?
1: (laughs) Sure. I hear that all the time, even from investors right here locally in California. uh, If you do, if you poke around online, that's the general consensus is you can't cash flow here at home, as we say, Right. And so we have a lot of people that have bought stuff out of state and maybe struggled with, you know, being an absentee owner and stuff like that. Well, the truth is you can make money here, um, but you have to know where to look. So you don't want to just go to the most very expensive market that you can find and buy something Um, on one hand. Our market is expensive comparatively, Um, but on the other hand, if you look at pricing, we have a huge variety of, um, you know, classes and, grades of buildings and areas that you can buy here sure if you go to beverly hills or santa monica or downtown los angeles that's absolutely a rich man's game you can't you have huge down payments in order to break even at all uh huge purchase prices to begin with and you know it's just it's super expensive to work in those types of markets but if you look at other you know cities that are still right in the metro area not on the outlying uh suburbs um, you're buying and you can get properties above you know four and a half even a five percent cap rate which allows you to buy with really good leverage here because we have great financing the lenders love these tier one markets because we have a super well diversified incredibly productive economy in normal times of course and uh, (laughs) so you get great terms you can get financing you know in the low threes lately um, for an interest rate and you can buy with Uh, 30% down, even 25% down sometimes, depending on the debt coverage ratio, which allows you to use great leverage and then take advantage of the super strong appreciation that you experience by investing in a coastal, you know, kind of uh, tier one market like this. But finding those deals that cash flow in the areas that you want to invest in is the trick. So it's usually looking at cities that are more working class or kind of transitioning gentrifying right now and there's quite a few of them in our area if you live in the in the los angeles area you don't have to drive very far to find that a lot of people are are kind of hesitant to get into that to begin with because they feel like oh there's going to be management headaches and you know i don't know what i'm going to have to deal with there well you know we recommend having a good professional manager to begin with but you know honestly a lot of the tenant headaches that you hear uh, that you hear about are not that common here because housing is just so scarce you tend to get people on the best behavior
0: yeah, I mean so there 's a lot to unpack there right and yeah. and you know something that I feel like we we skirted around a little bit was just the the legal you know position of of landlords in California relative to you know other states and and you know relative tenant versus landlord rights. Right. And it seems like, you know, it's like California, landlords don't really have a lot going for them. Um, is that wrong? And, and if not, then how are you you know mitigating that in your business?
1: It's not wrong. Uh, it's definitely more difficult to do business here as a landlord than it is in other states. Uh, you know, poster child for that statement is we recently got statewide rent control assembly bill 1482 passed last year became law january 1st and now across the entire state uh, whether you have a local rent control policy or not in your city you're capped at raising rents uh, by five percent plus the change in the cpi every year which um, you know rent control sounds terrible but when you really unpack that that's a that's actually a pretty high number it's enough to catch buildings up to market in most cases um our first year number is 8.3 percent so um you know a few years and you really can get a building to market with that and that of course goes with just cause for eviction limitations. So, and that can be a real onerous thing for landlords to manage through because if you have a tenant that's sort of a nuisance in creating problems, but you don't have a specific violation of the lease and they're still paying, it can be difficult to get them out. So you do need to manage around that, you know, and in my opinion, the best tool in the bag for that is to have a great property manager or to really know what you're doing with management. Um, cash for keys, a really popular strategy for getting tenants out if they're even if they're not paying it can be faster and less expensive to do some sort of you know buyout or cash for keys agreement than taking them all the way through the court system and getting a lockout because it's so tenant friendly here and it can take so long to get that done um, and so you have to budget for these things you have to understand that that's what you're dealing with but what people forget is the reason that we are a tenant friendly state on the legislative side is because that's actually a symptom of the supply imbalance that we have for rental housing here it's such a good landlord's market to own property in California that they had to legislate their way to protect the tenants because it goes so well for you if you own property over a long period of time here. And that's just because we have nowhere near enough rental housing to satisfy the demand here. There is a significant amount of uh, new development going on in like the downtown LA area, but that's really centralized. It's really class A apartments that are being built. When you look at class B and C apartments, which is usually the space that I like to play in, it's impossible to make those deals pencil on the developer side. And so you have, we have this extreme, Um, housing shortage, unfortunately. And as a result, that means that rents go up, values go up, leasing is super easy, vacancy is always low, even in in bad times, vacancy is low. Rents basically never go down, even in the the 2008 crisis, rents were basically flat for a year or two and then they started rising again. So when you look at it that way, I'm willing to accept the more onerous restrictions that are placed on us as landlords, in exchange for being an owner in a great market where you have an imbalance in supply and demand like that, that just can't possibly go away.
0: That's a really interesting way, way to put it. I hadn't thought that way, but you know, and whenever we're talking about LA, I always have to be looking at a map to make sure I'm staying and and keeping (laughs) up, you know, with all these different uh, areas that you're mentioning, Uh, but the land is very limited and the things that are there are, traffic in l a is already the worst in the country, and you know it's already bad and um you know, throughout the country, we're consistently really only developing class A anything, whether it's right. single family houses or apartment buildings or whatever, and that stuff's not affordable. it does increase supply, but it gets into complicated you know supply and demand uh, you know calculations and all that. But you did say something about making deals pencil as a developer. Now we're not talking development. We're talking buying real estate. We don't want to buy real estate and make the deal pencil. We want to buy deals that do pencil, Right, not make them work, but what do you look for to determine if a deal is going to pencil for you?
1: So I primarily want to look at the actual rents in place. Uh, You know, I I know just little rules of thumb I I walk around with in my head. In our market, at least expense ratios are really low. And I I know most people like to look at cap rates. Um, I tend to look at GRM first, gross rent multiplier, because it's harder to, It's harder to have subjectivity in that metric. I kind of know how these buildings are going to operate. So anything for me that I can buy that's like under a 14 times GRM in general is going to break even with 30% down uh, or less. And and the better you can do there, the better off you're going to be. So that's kind of what I look for. And I look at the GRM on actual rents. And then the upside is really important here, too. So we have a lot of buildings that have been under market for years haven't been caught up you know classic story right owner manager all that kind of stuff and so i like to buy buildings that have a bit of upside in rents but they're still priced decently on on an actual gross rent multiplier and then you, you get something that at least breaks even or cash flows. If it's a commercial deal, it's going to cash flow to close because the lender is going to force you to cash flow with their debt coverage ratio and analysis. Yep. And then your, your income develops rather quickly into a much more attractive investment. So these, this is a long-term game, but I'll, I'll typically see a, a deal where I might buy it at like a four and a half percent cap rate and the debt that I'll have on it will be maybe at three and a half percent. When you take the amortization into consideration, and everything you're making a little bit of money you maybe you're making a three percent cash on cash return on that deal which sounds terrible right uh, most people are that doesn't get you too excited but i know that that building is going to appreciate a lot more than it will in other markets We have that geographical constraint here on new development. We have a super aggressive economy and on the average over the last 54 years that we've been keeping statistics at our company, we're going to have, we've had about a 7% average annual rate of appreciation on value every single year. So if you apply leverage to that number and you take that cash flow, you're in the twenties on your rate of return right away. And then in a few years, if you have a little bit of upside, the rents, go up here usually faster than other areas. You capture that upside. It often doesn't take a lot of money to capture the upside because sometimes these units just don't even need that much to clean up. And I've looked at buildings, I did a little example of properties that I bought a couple years ago. And I looked at two buildings I bought about two years ago. One of them um, I is now operating at I think a 7.8% cap rate on my original purchase plus my renovation budget. The other one's at a nine so wow. you know saying that you can't cash flow at all in california is just not true it takes a little bit of patience and you know you're in it for the long-term game but on top of that on each one of those buildings on one of those i think it was a 12 unit property i purchased it for 1.43 and it's worth about 2.4 million now and i spent about 200,000 upgrading that so you know my ROE is through the roof on that property, and I was able to buy it with a ninety five percent bridge loan and then refinance into conventional. so I mean it returns in the un- like multiple hundreds percent so like i don 't know three or four times multiple even in my first couple of years on that property yeah. so and that 's what allows me to buy more because you can add value that quickly i 'm not just saving money from my active income and my cash flow to buy more buildings. I'm adding value, I'm refinancing, I'm exchanging, and that's what's allowed me to build a sizable portfolio because this market lets you add value like that and you appreciate so much faster.
0: You said something a bit earlier that I found very appealing and that, that I think goes well with this strategy that you're um, describing that the, the economic down markets don't hit rents in Southern right. California and LA really like they do in much of the rest of the country. And I think that makes this long-term strategy with kind of skinny margins at the beginning make a lot more sense in the long run.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, as we sit here uh, at our homes, we're on a, you know, a stay at home order here in LA, like we are in most of the country because of this coronavirus pandemic. And if you're reading the, you know, the national multi-housing headlines, I think the National Multi Housing Council came out and said April 2020 rents they, across the board, there was 69% collections. That's terrible, right? Like That's over awful. 30% delinquency. Well, so one, we, we work closely with property management partners here, and I can tell you what April collections look like here. We, we, we had 8.3% delinquency in April and that's up from 4.8% in March, which was a totally normal month. So just 3% more delinquency than we're experiencing during normal times right now during a time when you know millions of people have lost their job over the last few weeks. And so that right there is proof for the reason why it's great to own property here in California. I, you know, I don't think, I maybe have one tenant that didn't pay the rent as a result of the coronavirus and, and my buildings are, are gonna be fine. Whereas I would be really worried if I were in some other markets because of how that goes down. And that was the same experience that we had in 2008, 2009.
0: Interesting. So, I mean, something, you know, most listeners of the show know that I live in Richmond, Virginia, and we have people here talking about red strikes and we should go on red strike and so on and so forth. uh, Because let's face it, the courts, as we speak, are shut down in much of the country. You can't go in, you can't file an eviction. And in a a tenant friendly area like LA, it just seems like the logical thing for a tenant to say, well, normally you're going to have a hell of a time evicting me, and now, good luck, buddy. So, it, yeah. like, why do you think they're paying there? Why does that? I, mean- I think
1: I think they're smart enough to know the long-term consequences of doing that is going to be very bad for them. Uh, we have the same rent strike talk going on here too. There's tenants' unions and rights groups that are organizing, and they're, they're, there's talk about rent strikes across the entire state for the for the May rent. We'll see if that actually happens or not. Um, You know, if they do it, it's a stupid move. I mean, you're gonna shoot yourself in the foot. And I think a lot of tenants realize that. It comes back to that supply and demand imbalance, in my opinion, Mm. is, you know, if the tenants are doing the research right now, they know our courts are closed. They could just not pay the rent, even though technically they're supposed to provide proof of hardship. And we would then, you know, work for a payment plan with them. And of course, we want to be understanding and we've got a heart and we're happy to talk to people that have a real hardship. Uh, but there's definitely going to be a handful of tenants that say, oh, the courts are closed. There's no way they can do anything to me until September. So I'm just not going to pay the rent and I'm not going to even talk to my manager.
0: Professional well, tenants.
1: Yeah, professional tenant, right? Well, if they do that, they're going to be left with very few options at the end of that road. Eventually, they're going to get out. Eventually, the courts are going to reopen, they're going to get locked out, and they're going to be on the street. If you've got collections, if you've got a judgment, if you've got an eviction on your record, you're not getting a place to rent. Credit standards here are high. You know, We generally have the pick of the litter when it comes to picking tenants because it's so hard to find a place to rent. Those people are gonna be out sleeping in their cars, contributing to the homeless problem, which is yeah. a huge issue for us, moving in with relatives, you know, staying in short-term housing and stuff like that. And I think most people are smart enough to realize that that's a really stupid idea uh, just to get a few months free rent when maybe they didn't really need it to begin with.
0: Absolutely. Uh, uh, great points. And you, know, you brought up the, the homeless epidemic there, which you know, not living there, I don't, I don't see it, but I hear it's about here. it. Yeah. And uh, I hear it's enormous. And yeah, I don't know the solution, build more housing or whatever. I don't know if we're going to figure that out <laughs> right now. But it's a big yeah, problem. And it demonstrates that um, supply and demand issue that you're talking about.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's another sad symptom of the same problem, but you know, it is there. It's something to know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, something I also wanted to um, discuss is, and to give a background of this question, my background's in engineering. I've sold equipment that's installed in uh, California years ago, and the code compliance was an absolute nightmare. And the yeah. stuff that I was selling, like it's not even like that big a deal, but the, the right. paperwork and everything you had to go through. And I can only imagine... With residential property, it's significantly, it's just ridiculous. You know, I don't know. But what is that like and, and dealing with that? And, and how long does it take to get permits and to right. get them to inspect and all these other things?
1: It, it, it can be a bother. Um, honestly, residential is not nearly as bad as commercial. Mm. Um, I'm doing a commercial remodel in an office building right now and dealing with title 24 and ADA and all this stuff, environmental stuff, which people that aren't outside of California wouldn't know what some of these things are. But um, that's a huge problem for anywhere where you're going to be open to the public. For units, it's not as problematic, but that depends on the city. City of Los Angeles can be pretty difficult to work with. They've streamlined a lot of processes lately, though, because they understand that they have an issue, especially as it comes to adding new units. And the state's actually started a few new laws related to adding accessory dwelling units to apartment buildings Mm. too, that allow you by right to add additional units to even single family homes when the zoning wouldn't otherwise allow. But it's kind of city by city. If you're doing a basic remodel to a two bedroom apartment. There are a lot of cities where you can walk in and if you're just, you know, swapping out, if you're just swapping out finishes and fixtures, you might not even need a permit. If you're moving walls and stuff, you do. But, you know, there are pro business cities. Long Beach is is pretty decent to work with. A lot of cases you can get permits over the counter. Inspections aren't too bad. It's a few days. But there are definitely some cities that you just I don't even want to do business there because it's so bad (laughs) and it's weird. It's like random little cities that probably nobody's heard of that are particularly difficult to deal with. And I'm not going to name names on a recording, but, and and then some of them are surprisingly easy. So um, it definitely can be a problem, but you know, I haven't experienced it to be a huge deal. There are definitely a fair share of owners that do, especially interior remodels without getting permits. You know, a lot of these, it's, it's a quick replace the flooring, some counters, cabinets, you know, uh, bathroom and kitchen tile, and kind of cal- call it a day. And for, for that type of work, you technically don't even need permits in a lot of cities. So you know to the extent possible in our deals, we're doing more of that type of stuff, paint landscaping on the outside. Maybe you do windows and the window company go gets their goes and gets their permit. but we're trying to avoid, you know, adding a whole bunch of square footage and reconfiguring units and moving load bearing walls, it gets very expensive and time consuming when you do that.
0: Yeah, I can, I can believe it. I mean, some of the things that you threw out that like sort of kind of maybe sort of require permits is just, it sounds absolutely ridiculous to me. And yeah, yeah. The, the notion that, you know, we could maybe even have to get a permit to do floor cabinets or stuff that is just in no way related to the structural integrity of the property or anything like that. I mean, you said you don't have to get it, but
1: you shouldn't have to skate around it. Yeah, exactly.
0: Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, but you mentioned adding square footage and I wanted to touch on some of the value add strategies that you use on residential properties. Um, especially as it pertains to say cost of labor, cost of materials, the, cost of uh you know code compliance and permits and all of those things like what are your main strategies for for adding that value especially in light of the the rent control laws and how much of that you can actually capture
1: right well so you know if you're adding units you're going to be able to lease those at market right so you don't have to worry so much about rent control on new construction 15 years and and newer there is no rent control the um Statewide rent control doesn't apply city of Los Angeles rent control doesn't apply to any buildings built after 1978. So there's a large swath of buildings built in the eighties. We had a big building boom in the eighties that are not uh, subject to rent control. So those are pretty good. Um, As far as Costco, generally residential, you know, additional square footage here is probably going to run you around 250 a square foot, which is quite a bit yeah but um you know valuations even in the cheapest markets tend to be in the 300s so you know there's an argument there there's not a huge value add by doing that in some areas but if you're if you are working in a nicer area you know you can see price per square foot valuations go over a thousand in many cities here you know manhattan beach beverly hills all like super nice areas so if you have a property that you can add square footage to in a nicer area it can be a huge value add to do that even though the construction is expensive and again for the additional rent that you're getting because the cap rates are lower and the gross rent multipliers are higher for every additional dollar that you can capture you're making a lot more in value so a really popular strategy right now is to add adus and this is new new laws new legislation assembly bills that just came out Um, and just took effect January 1st of 2020. Um, Single family homes can have detached and attached accessory dwelling units. It basically allows you to turn almost any single family home into a triplex legally. Um, It doesn't become a triplex on title but the extra units are permitted they're just accessory dwelling units so if you can do that that's a really popular value add strategy right now apartment buildings that also applies to apartment buildings and there are different regulations there in some cases you can add 25 percent of the square of the uh, unit count on if you're adding within existing uh, square footage or if you're adding new square footage you can add two units to any apartment building out there at all so that can be great where the, the extra value that you get is a lot more than the cost of, say, 250 a square foot it might take to build that space. Really, the, the standard value add deal, though, is to buy an older building from the 50s, 60s, or even 1920s, You know, slap new finishes on it, you're not adding any extra square footage, you're gradually raising rents on the existing tenants in compliance with rent control. And tenants may or may not leave at all, right? So if they don't leave, you're not even paying for it. And you're getting the value add at a whatever, 8% clip a year when they do leave you redo the finishes you re-rent the unit at market and you've captured your, your value and maybe you own the building for three to five years and that gradually happens so that's the easiest kind of path of least resistance where you're not dealing with as many regulations permitting problems and stuff like that more aggressive strategies are more like adus and yeah adding space and doing development and stuff like that
0: so to be clear on this rent control, I don't know if I caught it before you probably said, but it only applies to current tenants like rolling over their lease or increases on a year over year basis on existing tenants.
1: Yes. So um, it's not vacancy control. So that's that's a big, uh, that's a bad phrase. So the, the rent control that a lot of people think of is the super strict rent control that we had decades ago. Where the city set the rent. And even after a tenant vacates, oh, they tell you what you can charge to Talk about
0: USSR, man. Holy That's crap. bad,
1: right? So obviously, that destroys free markets, de incentivizes investing, and all that stuff. So, that is still illegal under a state bill called the Costa-Hawkins Bill, which of course the tenant rights advocates have been trying to repeal for the last few election cycles. Um, But within the confines of the existing rent control law, no, when when a tenant vacates a unit, either voluntarily or through a just cause for eviction reason, um, you know, or of course, if they don't pay the rent, then the landlord is entitled to set the rent at whatever they want. If you're too high, you're not going to get a tenant, right? But you, you can take it to market whenever you have a new tenancy. This is just for uh, tenants and, and their rights actually vest after 12 months uh in this in this legislation. So if you have a bad tenant and it's early and you do month to month at the beginning, you have a you have some more rights to get them out than you do after their mm. their rights vest, their just their just cause for eviction rights vest. So um it's really not that bad.
0: Interesting. Okay. Okay. So you know before we move on to to the my three favorite questions I ask every guest, I want to make sure if listeners out there, they're, they're enticed, they're interested, maybe they're in California and they want to move forward, they want to take that first step or the next step to sure starting to invest in Southern California, what do you recommend new investors do to get started?
1: So um, we have a great platform for new investors. Our company is all about introducing new investors to multifamily investing right here locally. Uh, If you check out our website, it's just buckinghaminvestments.com. We have some downloadable basic guides on how to invest in apartments that take you through some of the metrics a lot of the jargon that you might hear that we probably heard during our conversation, Uh, pretty simple, no nonsense explanation of some of that stuff. And if that's interesting to you and you want some more of our market which we have detailed um, spreadsheets of all the data that we've scrubbed and published over the years that we're happy to share with people. Check us out. Shoot me an email at anthony.walker at buckinghaminvestments.com or find our website. Give us a call. Come into one of our offices. We're always happy to meet with people, talk to you about your goals, and see what we can do to help you get started. Um, we even have a lot of clients that start by just buying a two to four unit building an owner occupying a unit. And if you do that, you can buy with FHA financing three and a half percent down. I mean, even, you know, under $50,000 and you can be an apartment building owner here in Los Angeles. You might be
0: surprised. Nice. I love it. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Anthony, I've got three questions. I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready?
1: Okay, I'm ready.
0: First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education?
1: <laughs> the best investment I ever made. Well, um, let's see. The one we were talking about earlier has probably got the best numbers on it. So I, I bought, and this is, an interesting, this is an interesting one, the way that this went down. It gets kind of complicated. So look up all these terms and stuff if, if you're curious. And this is how I structured it. So I had a condo that I used to live in that I had moved out of and converted to a rental. And so the condo was eligible to sell and I had lived there two out of the last five years. So I could sell the condo and exempt 250,000 of my capital gain, but my gain was gonna be more than that. Nice. So you can exempt 250 and you can exchange the rest. Okay. So I cool. sold the condo, I exempted 250,000. I had about another uh, 100,000 as a down payment
0: nice. that
1: I used to buy a 12-unit apartment building in Long Beach. I bought the 12-unit apartment building in Long Beach with only $100,000 down for wow. $1.43 million, which shouldn't be possible, right? But yeah. I had a, a bridge lender, a private money lender, and because I had other buildings in my portfolio, I cross-collateralized the debt against another six-unit property that I already owned, and they pushed the LTV to 95% to me for me. So I exchanged the 100 grand into the 12-unit, and then I used some of the $250,000 to renovate it, which normally you'd have to pay taxes on and you wouldn't be able to use that cash to renovate the building. So I used 200 of that to renovate the building. 6 months later I refinanced that a valuation of $2.17 million. <laughs> I got 70% I got $70,000 cash back out and the building started cash flowing $4,000 a month oh on God. that day. So I added net, I think it was about $550,000 in value in six months. I got $70,000 back in cash. I got a building that cash flowed $4,000 a month all right here in Southern California from a condo that I used to live.
0: Man, talk about setting up the pins and knocking them down. <laughs> That's a good one. That's probably the best that one we've had went so well. far. That's great, yeah, I that love it. One. On the other side of that, we had the best okay. investment and that was a great one. What is the worst investment? Oh, okay.
1: The worst one I ever made. Uh, The worst one I made was one of my very early investments, which I know is common for a lot of people. Um, I bought a duplex uh also in long beach with an a non conforming bootleg unit in the back so it was a, it was a bootleg triplex and if only that were in this day and age maybe i could get that permitted under our new you know adu rules but um it looked great you know great on paper right because you're you're not paying for the extra space uh i i got a cheap price for it i paid 300,000 for a large duplex which is an incredible you, you yeah. won't see that this was, I think in like 2009 or 10. Um, well, city found out about the bootleg unit somehow. I, I think uh, a contractor messed up back to our earlier discussion on pulling some permit and uh, they, they came out and they found the bootleg. They uh, got me with a code violation. And not only was I forced to convert the property and remove the bootleg unit, the city did a little research and said, well, the lot size wasn't large enough to even support two units because of the zoning, despite the fact that it was a totally legal permitted duplex going all the way back to the 1950s. So because of the bootleg, they threw the book at me and forced me to convert the property to a single family residence. And I had to convert it, join the two units in front, remove the bootleg and back and just leased it to the tenant that was taking the largest unit luckily at that point everything was so cheap that the property still kind of paid for itself at that point it was just a break-even investment i owned it i think for two or three more years i did end up selling it i still made money on that property uh, but really only by virtue of the direction of the market so kind of lucked out because of where we were when i when i bought it in timing but uh, that one did not go as planned
0: (laughs) wow yeah no i i think it's absolutely ridiculous that you know if if the thing was You know, I understand the bootleg unit and them, you know, not allowing that. Like, that makes sense. But seeing, okay, the lot size isn't right for, you know, whatever. Like, who
1: cares? Right. And their permits were there from the 50s. So
0: it permitted, like, it's up. It's fine. Who cares? Let it go.
1: I don't know. Knowing what I know now, I have a, you know, I have a deeper network of attorneys. Maybe I would have done something to fight it, you know, but at the time uh, I took it.
0: Oh, wow. Well, it it didn't damage you that, that badly, at least in the wallet, it sounds like. So.
1: I turned out okay.
0: Yeah, that's good. My favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing?
1: By far, relationships are everything absolutely everything Uh, you just you cannot discount the value of the relationships in your life Uh, if if you have good people and you're good to the people in your life and um you get a good reputation going you are going to have so many opportunities everything is going to be so much easier and when things get tough, you're gonna to have options, you're gonna have support, you're gonna have people to talk to and help you, you're gonna get cracks at great deals, you're gonna get exceptions when you need them. Uh, I just can't stress the importance of relationships enough.
0: I love that. You know, I, I think real estate investing is even is is like unique in that way that I think people understand the value in relationships more I think value uh, relationships are equally valuable across industries but I think people really get it in real estate investing the most so I, I really appreciate that thanks for all the lessons today I California sounds a lot more appealing now you know in spite of uh, all of the road bumps uh, speed bumps that we that we talked about um, Anthony thanks for everything today if folks want to get in touch with you where can they find you
1: Absolutely, my email is anthony.walker at com, all spelled out and plural, or you can go to my website, buckinghaminvestments.com and shoot a Google search in there. And thanks so much for having me, it's been my pleasure.
0: Hey, it's been mine as well. Great conversation, thanks for all the lessons and the inspiration and all of that. It's been so much fun, really appreciate it. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Very much appreciated. Helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.